if he would have told me when I talked to him, look, I had sex with her that night, she spent the night, and then we fell asleep, and then we woke up and I had sex with her again in the morning, I would have closed this case that day. Is that by saying that, by saying, by blaming it on the jury pool, you're essentially saying, we're not going to stop sexual assault, period. I mean, by taking that tag, they're essentially saying to perpetrators everywhere, you are free to rape because we think it's pretty hard to prove these cases. Was it a criminal sexual assault? No. Is he guilty of being, you know, less than a gentleman? Absolutely. Who in the hell is writing their opinion in a report, but I'm hoping it's not our agency. Oh, dude, just ran away to get me pizza. I'm super drunk. Like, my limbs are weak, so... So I'm just gonna leave this on. And when he comes back, it'll be, like, super... In case you've ever wondered what a person on drugs that they didn't consent to taking sounds like, that's it. That was one very small part of a voice note I found on my phone the morning after being drugged and raped. It was timestamped at 11.15pm from the night before. I had completely blacked out for several hours and that was recorded around when I first started to regain some amount of consciousness. That voice is most definitely not the voice of a person who drank two glasses of wine and a sip of a mojito approximately four hours before then. That voice is not the voice of a person who drank too much. That is the voice of a person who has been drugged. I sounded like I had been given an anesthetic, I couldn't even move my tongue properly. I don't even really remember much of anything after that moment in the night, just a few flashes of memories here and there. Even though at that point I was awake again, I was weaving in and out of blacking out, mostly out, for the rest of the night until about midnight when I fell back to sleep or passed out again. I do distinctly remember a couple of things, the first of them being my arms feeling heavy and feeling like it was difficult to move, alone on a mattress in the dark somewhere I hadn't been before. Drug-facilitated sexual assault is a common occurrence, although the most common form of it is alleged to be through alcohol. You don't hear a lot about someone slipping something in your drink, even though it occurs pretty frequently. In fact, Keith Graves estimated that in his jurisdiction, it occurred maybe 60% of the time that a sexual assault was reported. In my jurisdiction, I only read through a handful of reports, given that the records department could only manage to print out about 40 over the seven months that I had waited since requesting them. But I was surprised to read that in almost about half of the sexual assault reports I had requested, the victim was suspicious of having been drugged. National data and national surveys and other research suggest that drug-facilitated sexual assault outside of just using alcohol only accounts for anywhere between 2 to 15% of sexual assault. But I'm suspicious of that number, and we'll talk about why that is as we get into the episode. So this episode is dedicated entirely to better understanding drug-facilitated sexual assault. I have found that it is wildly misunderstood by pretty much everyone, from detectives to the general public. This type of sexual assault is one of the most difficult to prosecute and one of the least likely to be tried because of the lack of understanding and the lack of evidence that often presents when a predatory drug is used. 
positive toxicology results are even more rare than a detective actually arresting a rapist. I've heard and seen so much false information about this type of assault that it infuriates me to my core. So I talked to some experts to dispel some myths. A few of these include, number one, the victim was just confused and drank too much. This myth is false and incredibly damaging. Next, secondly, the victim was in trauma and that's why they couldn't remember. This is also false and we'll talk about why. Third, if a victim is drugged, a blood or urine test would show it. So, 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 so false and we'll get into all the nuances of why that is. And fourth, it would be so obvious to a victim if they were drugged. Once again, not so, and we'll talk about why. We're going to be hearing from Keith Graves, drug recognition expert, and Julie Valentine, who all research or somehow work in the field of sexual assault, including, at least in part, drug-facilitated sexual assault. Keith Graves is a drug-facilitated sexual assault expert who has made training courses on his own about how to adequately investigate these crimes. He's one of few people who I've heard of around the country who's doing this, and he offers a great course that I took that you can find at his website that I'll leave at the end. Trinka Prada is also a renowned drug-facilitated assault expert, and she has a lot to say and a lot of knowledge about the type of drugs that are used. And Dr. Julie Valentine is a professor who I spoke to about multiple topics, and one of those was briefly drug-facilitated sexual assault, and she had some pretty good insight to offer. The first part of this topic that I want to tear into is toxicology because it's the most easily explained. So we're going to get back to Keith Graves, but this time I'm going to let him talk a little bit about who he is and why he's an expert in this field. Uh, I was a police officer in the San Francisco Bay Area for 29 years. Uh, I retired uh, just two years ago as a sergeant. Uh, I spent most of my career working some type of drug enforcement, whether it was street level or, you know, in a regular narcotics unit doing investigations. Um, uh, let's see. So I pretty much have done everything in police work. I was on SWAT for 20 years. Um, I did a lot of uh, training. And I, I had been teaching different subjects around the state of California for a long time, and I wanted to expand. So I started my own business, Graves and Associates. And now we we have international uh, training. So last year we were did courses in New Zealand and Australia, Ireland, and then all across the United States. So kind of went bigger than I thought it ever would. Yeah. And how I got interested in drug facilitated sexual assault was uh, I had a case uh, where a young lady had been raped and it was drug facilitated. They used GHB. And this was back in the Gosh, it would be like the mid nineties when this really first started becoming a problem. And I wanted to learn more about it and I couldn't find any classes that really told me how to investigate it. So I made my own. <laughs> I uh, went out and talked to the experts and went out and dug up as much information as I could and then started implementing that and found out that what we were training people worked really well and it's kind of taken off from there. Something that I learned from him that became clear to him also very quickly as he started to dive into the world of creating programs to help other detectives better investigate drug-facilitated sexual assault was that he realized really quickly that it was helpful to have a background or at least a multidisciplinary team that had knowledge of both drugs and sexual assault. 
Police departments are a funny thing. Uh, people get tied up into their own world, right? So uh, narcotics detectives tend to be very gung-ho, hardcore, highly motivated people. Uh, sexual assault detectives are more, a little more reserved, analytical thinking, um, kind of the polar opposite. And so when you're talking about drug-facilitated sexual assault, you need to be good at both. And it, it was tough. You can't really have a narc-investigated drug-facilitated sexual assault. And, you, you know, certainly a, a sexual assault investigator can do a good job, but there's aspects of the drug part that they aren't going to understand. And so I sat down with a friend that was a sexual assault investigator. Um, I told him my concerns about how I saw that they were being investigated and he had a, a good interest in uh, drug enforcement as well. And we just sat down and looked at what the experts said. And then we kind of, you know, said that's fine in the academic world, but it's what's really going to help in the street. You know, what's going to help the victim in the street. How is it, how are we going to be able to bring somebody to justice? He went on to talk about how having both mindsets, one of a drug investigator and one of a sexual assault investigator was so helpful in, analyzing these crimes you know it's it's nothing magical it's just having a clear understanding of basic sexual assault investigations and a clear understanding of drugs and what they're going to do to the body the story behind how he kind of got thrown into this world and how this ended up becoming such a major topic for him was so interesting to me that i really wanted everyone to hear it my agency back in the mid 90s um we would have on-call detectives so if something happened in the middle of the night then they would call a detective out to come handle it and for me, being a narc, you know, drug crimes are easy, but my biggest fear was dealing with a sexual assault because I knew nothing about how to deal with sexual assaults. And one night I got called out in the middle of the night for a sexual assault victim. She had uh, been raped at a party in the middle of the night. And I was freaking out because I, you know, I know you're a detective, but you're a detective of a specific thing. And there, you know, a drug investigation is completely different from a burglary investigation, which is completely different from a homicide investigation. And that's why you have homicide investigators, burglary investigators, and so robbery investigators, and so on. So when I got called out, I kind of freaked out. But then I found out, you know, the the uh, the victim's friend said, "Hey, I I couldn't find her in the party." And so I looked for, her and I found her, and she was uh, being assaulted by these two guys. And she wasn't intoxicated when she went in there, but she, I couldn't wake her up. And so I was looking at the victim and I'm, I'm also a drug recognition expert. So it's a person that's uh, highly trained to determine if somebody's under the influence of a drug. And I looked at her and I'm like this, she's under the influence of a, of a depressant and it looks like it's going to be GHB. And I just handled it like a drug investigation. I wrote it my search warrant instead of being a sexual assault uh, search warrant. I actually wrote it as a narcotic search warrant because you go off what you know. Yeah. And we went in, we found a Gatorade bottle. I know that GHB is often putting Gatorade bottles and you mix it with Gatorade because, you know, to kill the taste. And so we recovered it and we found uh, GHB inside that container that was in the garbage can right next to a condom that um, had the suspect's DNA in it. So, and the victims. So it was very, it was satisfying. It, it resolved very easily, but I look back and I definitely, I mean, it worked out okay, but it wasn't the best way to investigate it. And that's when I got interested in this, this whole thing. 
His perspective on drugs, the different kind of drugs that are used and how they've evolved over time was really interesting too and it explains so much about drug-facilitated sexual assault today and why it's so difficult to get positive toxicology reports. When I first started, you had five drugs and we call them the NHTSA five and it's because it's it's the five drugs that are tested by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. It's uh, meth, coke, heroin, weed, and PCP. That's all we dealt with. So it was really easy to do cases. Well, now you look with the advent of the internet and I watched the internet just take off with all these drugs. Now we have one new synthetic drug comes out every week. Oh my gosh. And you know, how do you keep up with that? Right? You know, uh, the latest one was, was just an opioid drug. Uh, it's not going to test positive on a drug test because I don't think anybody really has the metabolite to test for it right now. Uh, you know, so with the advent of all these new drugs that come out, it's easier to cover your tracks. One new synthetic drug every single week is a lot. How could anybody expect to keep up with that ever? Never mind how long it takes to be able to come up with a test to be able to determine whether or not that substance is being used. And what's even the point if it's just going to change in the next week anyway? It's so difficult to figure out what drug somebody used when even just one little piece of it is a little bit different. It's not going to test positive on a drug test. He's also referring here to major drugs just used in general in the United States, but the most common date rape drugs or predatory drugs that you hear about when referring to sexual assault are the major three, which are Rohypnol, Ketamine, and GHB. However, he goes on to explain that there are so many more than that, and it's really a shame that those are the only ones that are talked about. It's so important to me on a personal level to dispel myths about how date rape drugs work in the body because that was part of what was so confusing about it for me. I had never had any reason to learn about date rape drugs other than the basic fact that they exist and they're something that as a woman, you're taught to grow up and be fearful of them and watch out for them and watch your drink. But no one had ever explained to me that they all work in completely different ways. The only one I had ever really heard of was Rohypnol. And Rohypnol is very outdated, isn't really used that much anymore, and it's a drug that's going to leave you incapacitated and unconscious for a very long time, possibly up to 12 hours or more. I always assumed before I was drugged that getting drugged meant I would have been sleeping in a basement somewhere for 48 hours and then by the time I woke up it would have been days that have passed and I would have had no idea what was going on or where I was or what had happened. But I was given a relatively fast-acting drug, one that I believe was probably in my system for around 12 to 15 hours or so. And that was in its entirety until I fell asleep and woke up and finally felt better, you know, 15 to 16 hours later. But for those first four hours, I did not remember a single thing that happened and nothing could have triggered my memory. It was gone, just like going into getting surgery. And I had no idea that that was how date rape drugs could work. I didn't know that they could last for only four hours. I didn't know that you could wake up and still be kind of in and out of consciousness. I had no idea. I always just assumed that there was one type and one way they worked and there was no other way. So it was really validating to hear from him. Somebody who knows drugs in and out knows how many different kinds of drugs there are and the different strengths and the different types. 
It was so validating to hear from him all of the different ways that they can work and why they're so confusing for victims. But like I said, one of the first things I really want to get into is why toxicology reports so frequently do not come back with a positive drug test for a victim who knows that they were drugged. Yeah, so when they, when, let's say we're going to check somebody's blood or urine for a drug, we're not checking for the actual drug. When you take a drug in your body, your body metabolizes it. So your body's going to start breaking it down into other substances so you can pee it out, sweat it out, uh, you know, however you're going to get it out of your body. And so it starts breaking it down into these metabolites. So is an example like with cocaine. Um, if it's going to be almost impossible for you to test positive for cocaine because it metabolizes and breaks down so quick. Uh, so what they're going to test for is a substance called benzoglycanine. That's what they're going to test for. And that's going to show that there was cocaine in the body or methamphetamine. Methamphetamine starts breaking down into amphetamine. So we'll actually check for amphetamine to see if that's present in the body. So when you talk about some of these other drugs, there may not be a metabolite that we can even test for because it's so new. So these, you remember, you got one new synthetic drug coming out every week. Well, you have to find out what the metabolite is for that particular drug so you can test for it. If you don't know what the metabolite is, it's not going to come back positive. The other issue is that your body might metabolize it very quickly. Some drugs, it takes a while to metabolize. Heroin, I can check for that for up to three days in your urine. But something like GHB is going to go within eight hours before I lose that metabolite. And when you look at the delay of victims uh, reporting, you're not going to get it in time to be able to check for that metabolite. And, and I get why victims don't come in. I mean, you know, there's a little bit of denial and, you know, protecting yourself of like, oh, that didn't happen. And you try to rationalize it. So on top of having some drugs that are very fast acting and metabolites that might not be able to be found within the body after a very short amount of time anyways, there are also some drugs where you don't even have a metabolite that you can test for yet. That explains so much about toxicology. There are so few drugs that you can actually test for in the amount of time when a victim actually goes to report a crime and get a drug test done. Even if you go the very next morning, even if it's 12 hours later and you go in to get a drug test, it already might be way too late for the majority of substances that are out there. But just because the substance doesn't have total control of your body anymore and might not even be able to be detected in your body, there still can be somewhat of a hangover effect that can be extremely disorienting to victims. So he talked a little bit about that too. Some of these drugs are pretty hefty and it takes a while to come out from under them. And then it, it's almost like the best way I can explain is you get this hangover. And it's like, if you have a hard time sleeping, so you might take a, uh, you know, you might take like a, like a Benadryl or some other drug to help you sleep during the night. But when you wake up in the morning, it's hard to get moving and motivated because that drug is still kind of, you, know, you got like that hangover and that drug's still hanging on. Okay, th those drugs you took to go to sleep are pretty minor. You know, what are you talking about when it's this synthetic drug that's very powerful, you know, or GHB, something that's very powerful uh, that you normally don't take, or you, I'm sorry, not normally, but you never take it before. Uh, it really has a hard time with your cognition. You have a hard time thinking clearly um, and concentrating and, and making wise decisions. So usually when it gets reported right away, it's because a friend or a family member recognizes what's going on and, uh, directs them to the police right away. 
And that's basically what happened in my situation. I was so disoriented. And as I was driving home, I told one of my best friends that I couldn't remember anything from the night before. I went home, I took a nap for like three or four hours. And by the time I woke up, she was really concerned and had me start calling hotlines. But without somebody else's help, I don't think I would have noticed it. I was so disoriented. I can't overstate that enough. And then on top of that, there are all of these other reasons why you want to believe that you're somehow mistaken, even though that sounds completely ridiculous later on when your head is cleared. But in the moment, especially, if that person has a position of power or trust in the community or over you, you really want to believe that person wouldn't do it. And that's something that Keith Graves is super aware of and talks about. You want to think that person really wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. And the, the bad thing about being a cop is you're so jaded. You know, because you see so many normal people do bad things. Like, you know, you see bosses do it to their subordinates. You see it clergy do it to their parishioners. Um, you see it husbands do it to wives. We've seen wives do it to husbands. Uh, siblings, family members, uh, you, friends, you name it. It's, it, it, it. it's bad all the way around. And you try to rationalize it because it doesn't, because People are good-natured people, and they have a hard time believing that something like that would actually happen. Kind of what it reminds me of is when you catch a kid doing drugs, and you know, as a cop, you catch a kid doing drugs, and you call the parents, "Hey, come, you know, your kid's doing drugs. You need to pick them up." And they're like, "My kid doesn't do drugs," and they they're trying to rationalize it, and it's like, "Well, I'm here to tell you, <laughs> your kid's doing drugs. Otherwise, I wouldn't have called you." You know, but they're they're trying to they're trying to rationalize it because you know they they they're just they can't believe it. Too true, and those people in power know it and they exploit it. But getting back into a little bit more about drug testing, I had a few more questions about exactly what they're looking for and how they find it, and he had so much more to offer and to say about that. What I asked him about specifically was something that he mentioned in his course. He mentioned that sometimes in a drug test, there's a certain limit that you're looking for, but just because your results don't meet up to a certain limit doesn't mean that it wasn't found in the body. And sometimes changing the limit can mean the difference between detecting whether or not a drug was used. So he talked about that a little bit more in detail. So when we do a drug test on somebody, uh, that we're going to take, uh, normally we're going to take a blood or a urine. That's going to be the best evidence. When you send it to the lab, they're going to do like an, an initial test just to see if anything tests positive. And if it does, then they put it into a, a gas chromatography mass spectrometer or a liquid uh, chromatography mass spectrometer. And then they, they want to look at actually what the levels are of the drug in the, in the system. So they'll go to look to see what the actual levels are in the, in the blood or the urine. Um, what they're going to do is they're worried about false positives because like as an example, if you eat, you know, three poppy seed, uh, bagels, then you might test positive for opioids. I mean, I don't know if that's the amount, but is an example. <laughs> to avoid an incident like that, they have a threshold. And is anything above that threshold? That's definitely drugs. Um, but when you're talking about a case like this, you really want to lower that. If, if it comes back negative, you want to lower that threshold because you could lower it out to zero. So they may like raise it up to like, let's say we only want anything in the test above 200 nanograms per milliliter. Well, you may say, we need to bottom this out and see what comes up, period. And that way you can see like there's a trace amount. And the reason why you want to do that, let's say the suspect is prescribed uh, Soma. 
and you're going to check for the metabolitosoma in the victim's urine, but it comes up clean, but you, you, you bring that line down to zero instead of, let's say, if it was a 200 nanograms per milliliter. But now she tests positive or he tests positive for soma. Well, if they're not prescribed soma, but the suspect is, that's really good evidence. So, uh, you know, that's, that's why you want to look at those thresholds and you want to think about lowering them if you need to. I had never thought about that before, but it's such a unique strategy. Lower everything to zero. If even something shows up just a little bit, then you'll know that you're on the right track. One other really helpful thing that he talked about that I wish had been done was doing a blood alcohol content test to make sure that you can rule out alcohol. And he talks about why that's important too. You want to look at the levels of alcohol in there because really what you want to do is you want to rule, there's two things. You want to rule out alcohol um, is one of the associated factors. I mean, if it is, it would explain a lot too, looking at the, the actual numbers of how much alcohol is in the body. But the other thing too is that some drugs interact with alcohol and they they form a synergistic effect where it, um, it increases the potency. So let's say, let's go back to Soma again. Um, if I was to take a Soma pill, you know, obviously that would make me intoxicated, but if I took a Soma pill with a couple of shots of vodka, that's going to increase, that's going to, instead of taking like one pill, that's like taking 10 pills. You know, I mean, I'm kind of making it bigger than it really is, but it's significantly more and it really does create a, a, a higher level of intoxication. And so you want to do it to either rule out alcohol, see, you know, just see how alcohol played in that whole scheme of things. One thing again, though, that's important to know about this is that unless you're getting your alcohol test done pretty much right there on the spot while you're still intoxicated, it's not going to be helpful. If you go a day later or a couple days later after you're not feeling the heavy effects of the drug anymore, after you're awake again, after being unconscious, there's a chance that it's not going to be helpful at all. Because doing an alcohol test a couple of days after, it may show some metabolites, but all it's going to show is that you had some amount of alcohol probably at some point within a certain amount of days. It's not going to actually tell you how much you had on what day. It'll just say whether you did or you didn't have it. So that could be useful if you're someone who blacked out or felt especially strange without having consumed any alcohol, but given the nature of drug-facilitated sexual assaults, usually the victim is already voluntarily consuming some amount of alcohol, even if it's not very much. It just makes for a really easy defense, and it makes it really easy for the suspect to confuse the victim afterwards. And given that it's such an easy defense for a defense attorney to say, well, the toxicology test didn't come back positive, so obviously she's lying. I really wanted to find out from an expert who's been working on this for decades how often it really happens that a positive drug test comes back. Getting a positive test will almost never happen. And this is why so many prosecutors won't even touch this crime and why so many detectives won't even take it seriously afterwards. But is that how it should really be dealt with? Now, just because you don't get a test doesn't mean you stop everything. You're still going to continue. Um, just be, you know, if you get a positive test, hey, that's great. That's going to help you out a lot. Um, but if you don't get a positive test, you're still going to move forward. And you know, when you go to court, if they bring up, well, but you don't have a positive test. Well, of course I don't because this was reported, you know, three weeks later or, you know, what have you. But it's, it, it shouldn't reflect negatively upon the case. And on top of that, 
San Diego police actually came up with a really innovative way to determine whether or not somebody had been drugged and potentially figure out what kind of drug they might have been given. He talks about it in terms of a test request form. So the test request form was actually started by San Diego Police Department, and uh, and we enhanced upon that. I really like it because um, it gives it gives the investigator a checklist, and you go down the checklist, and it's almost like we call it a forensic drug evaluation, where we interview the victim and the witnesses, and we look at the signs of intoxication. And maybe sometimes there's video around or pictures that we could use to help us. And then we can narrow it down. Like as an example, the difference between a stimulant like methamphetamine and cocaine are way different than an opioid like heroin or oxycodone or hydrocodone or something like that. There are two total ends of the spectrums. So when you interview somebody, you can say, well, it's definitely not that. So it's going to be one of these four drug categories. Well, that allows you to now narrow down uh, what drugs you're going to test for. And it's just almost like a reverse pyramid. You start uh, questioning everybody and you start at the top and you have like all these different drugs it could be. But as you start talking to people, the lower down you go, the list, it starts narrowing it down to just a couple of drugs. And it just makes it a little bit easier for the toxicologist instead of shotgunning it and seeing, you know, a myriad of different things it could be, you're narrowing it down to just a small segment of what it could possibly be that they're looking for. And this is helpful in so many ways. It could be helpful if you don't have any kind of blood or urine sample, but it's also helpful if, you know, given the fact that everybody only gives a certain amount of blood or urine when they're getting these tests done and there are so many drugs that are out there, you can actually narrow down what class you're looking for and use more of your sample to be able to determine exactly what kind of drug was used. However, this is not frequently done at all. He went on to talk a lot more about the different things that criminals will do when they're committing a drug-facilitated sexual assault to make the victim look like they have more blame than they actually do. Which, of course, they don't have blame at all, considering they're the one being raped by somebody who's choosing to do that and they're not consenting to it. But he mentioned that people will do things like inject them with cocaine after they're knocked out so that when they wake up, they can tell them that they have cocaine in their system and they'll be afraid to go report it to the police. Or they'll inject them with cocaine for their own sick enjoyment so that they'll be a little bit more lively, as he put it, while they're committing the drug-facilitated sexual assault. He also mentioned that none of these things should stop a victim from reporting if that's what they choose to do because the criminal system won't hold it against them, according to him. And he also mentioned that that's why there are drug recognition experts like himself that can go testify about that in court. One of the last things about drug testing I wanted to ask him about was hair testing. So when all else fails, hair testing can be done. A lot of people get hair testing done when they go to a private school or something like that, so a lot of people are really familiar with it, but as it turns out, hair testing is incredibly unreliable. It's not a very well-studied science, and it often comes back about with as many positive results and as many accurate results as a blood or urine test would, which is to say, next to almost never. So I just asked him to explain why that is. Hair testing, what they're going to do, heroin, or sorry, heroin. So hair testing is good to show uh, length of use. So if you have really long hair and we cut your hair and we test it, we can go back and look at a, a, a basically a history of, of use. 
Uh, the problem with that becomes though, like that's great if it's like a child custody issue, right? We can show, oh, look, they used, they've used, uh, you know, methamphetamine in the last six months. But when you talk about like a sexual assault investigation, okay, number one, the drugs that people use to facilitate rape may not show up in a hair test. So you have all the same problems as the other tests. It might not be something that's testable at the moment, or it might not be in an amount that can show up. But also on top of that, unless you're a longtime user of it, it's probably not going to show up in your system. Which is to say, again, that it's unlikely to show up in your hair at all. So hair testing, while it's an emerging science, is definitely not anything that can be relied upon at this moment in time. Maybe it could be for long-term drug use, but if you just got drugged and raped one time, it's very unlikely to show up in your hair. And it's also worth noting that even if it is something that either you take as a prescription or somebody was drugging you over a long period of time, which we'll hear an example of that in just a little bit, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to show up in the hair test result. So... The takeaway that I want every single listener to get from this is that no matter what kind of test you do, no matter how soon you do it, no matter what, there's a chance that this drug will never ever show up. And especially considering how disorienting and confusing and honestly sleepy and exhausted being drugged makes you, the likelihood that you're going to go get a drug test right away, first of all, is very small. After that, the likelihood that the drug is going to show up in the first place is incredibly small as well. On top of that, it's not even just that it's the drug that they're searching for that could be the issue, but there might not even be a test available for whatever you were drugged with, so that's another problem. And after all of that, the metabolite that's left inside of your body and the amount that's there might not meet the sort of somewhat arbitrary standard that's used for detecting a drug in the first place. So until more attention is paid to how exactly we should be looking at drug-facilitated sexual assault and doing toxicology like Keith Graves suggests, such as lowering the bar to absolutely zero, either the victim has nothing at all in their body or even a trace amount, there's nothing that we can rely upon with these toxicology tests to prove that it ever happened. The likelihood of getting a positive result, as he said, is next to nothing, and those are many of the reasons why. Some of them are things that we can do something about, some of them are things that science is going to need to catch up with, and some of them are honestly just beyond control. When you have a new substance every week that you have to test for, there's no way to keep up with all of that. So what's important is looking beyond the toxicology, and looking at the symptoms of the victim. If the victim tells you that they had two drinks, they blacked out, and then there's corroborating evidence that suggests that they were completely incapacitated after a very minimal amount of alcohol, probably you should go ahead and believe them. So hopefully that dispels one of the four main myths that I had wanted to talk about in this episode. The myth that if a victim is drugged, a blood or urine or even hair test would show it. Hopefully that makes it more understandable why that is so false and why that's not something that can be relied upon. But it's also not something that can make or break a case. There are so many other things that a victim can present with that some evidence can show that the victim was drugged that you don't need to rely on that. And so 
Even though detectives like to stop short of forensics, this is a clear example of a situation in which they should absolutely not be stopping short of forensics. And one thing I appreciated so much about Keith Graves was the fact that he was willing to continue beyond that and to take a stronger stance and to believe the victim and to track down on his own without the victim's persuasion video evidence that proved that whatever happened to the victim that she explained actually did. If you listened to the last episode, you know what I'm talking about, so be sure to go back and check it out if you can't remember. The next thing that I really want to move on to is the idea in one of the myths that if somebody is drugged, they're obviously going to know it. And I completely understand that it sounds ridiculous that somebody wouldn't know that they were drugged, but trust me when I say that until it happens to you, you have no idea how confusing that can be. Luckily, Keith Graves does have an idea of exactly how confusing this can be from his, again, decades of experience working in this field, and so he shared a little bit of that with me that I'd really like to share with you. He had just finished telling me the story of a woman who was basically a self-admitted alcoholic who had gone to somebody's house, had two drinks, only two drinks, and then woke up and realized that she had been sexually assaulted. And so she was very candid in telling him, you know, I only had two drinks. That would normally never affect me the way that it did. Um, Not that two drinks would really affect, honestly, most people that much in the first place. However, after that, I started asking him, well, what's, what's the common, is that pretty common? Is that what you normally see? And then he started to talk about how confusing it can be for victims who are not chronic alcoholics. And here's what he had to say. So would you say that's like a pretty classic case is like someone has like one to two drinks, completely blacks out for several hours, and then has like little patches of memory when they eventually wake up a little bit, that kind of thing? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them present that way. And sometimes the victim might not even know they might've been told by somebody that they were raped. Uh, another good one was, uh, there was a case in LA County where, uh, this guy, uh, was, a was a music, uh, producer and, uh, or worked in the records industry and they had recovered it. They had found out that he had been sexually assaulting women, drug facilitated. They did a search warrant on his house, found a, uh, found, uh, videos of him having sex with unconscious women. Just again, going to take this opportunity to point out why it's so important to go back to the crime scene or to search the suspect's house after a drug facilitated assault, even if it's been a little while since the crime occurred. But anyway, on this recording and they were able to find a number of the women that were in the recordings. And a lot of them didn't know that they were raped until the police showed them the video. It sounds a little confusing, but it kind of makes sense. If you have no idea, if you had been having a few drinks and then all of a sudden you woke up the next day and you thought, oh, that's weird, I don't remember some things, and you just kind of carry on with your life, why would you think, especially if you trusted the person you were with, that something was horribly wrong? But the best way that I can explain it and the way that it happened with me is that when I was drugged, it felt like exactly identical to when I was 24 years old and I had to get my tonsils out. So I went home for the holidays and I went into the doctor's office and I was really nervous so they prescribed me whatever it is that they prescribe you and I was in one room the next 
and I remember being put on the operating table. And after that, pretty quickly after saying some kind of crazy things that some of which I remember and some of which I'm sure I don't, I just remember waking up in a completely different room. Um, a lot less happy than I was going into that room. And the whole entire thing, obviously you don't remember a single second of it. Not a single second. There's nothing that anyone could have said or shown me to make me remember any moment of that time. And that's exactly what happened to me the night that I was drugged. And Keith Graves has a really good comparison to basically compare it to being under some kind of anesthetic and then waking up later and being like, okay, well, you said I was awake, but I didn't feel like I was. And who knows if you even were during an assault. It's like, exactly. It's a great, I forgot about that analysis. You know, when you, when you go into the, uh, when you go to the doctor and they put you under for, let's say they're going to put a scope into your stomach through your mouth so they can look to see if you have ulcers where well, you're not going to be awake for that. And so they're going to put you out. They're going to give you Versed and fentanyl, fentanyl to kill the pain and Versed to make you forget about all the horrible things they're doing to you. And so when you wake up, the nurses are hilarious. They're like, oh, you were saying this, you were saying that. Apparently the last time I had this, the, the nurses were telling me that I was asking them out for drinks and we should go get some Jack and Coke. And I'm like, I don't remember that. I truly apologize, but I do like Jack and Coke. So, so <laughs> it probably did happen, right? But I don't have any recollection of it, but it still happened. Um, you know, and that's where we get with consent. How are you going to consent when you're I mean, you may look like you're alert and conscious, but you're not. And it's, it's like if you go back and look at the videos of kids coming back with their wisdom teeth pulled out, you know, and everybody's playing jokes on them and you're making them do funny things. Those kids aren't going to remember later on. Um, you know, how are you going to give consent if you're in that state? You know, you, you can't. And that becomes the issue in court later on because these guys often videotape uh, what's going on. And is an example there was one where um this girl uh, it was a dentist that had uh been given uh, the victim ghb and then he was raping him and when you look at the video which is the most horrible thing to watch ever it looks like you know she there's no audio but she's up looking around puts her head down and if you didn't understand uh ghb and how it reacts with the body you know you would look at that and go oh it looks consenting but it's not you know, for her, she came back positive for GHB. We can show you a million witnesses that say she's never done GHB and doesn't do any drugs. But yet it's positive in her body. She's reacting exactly like you would if you were under the influence of that drug. And that's one thing that is honestly so frightening to me and should be to anyone, but it's something that is easily overcome if prosecutors and detectives are aware of it. Even though a victim might not remember anything even though a person may think they were completely unconscious, there is a chance that they were conscious for what happened to them, but they just don't remember it at all. And this is one of the reasons why it was so hurtful to me that over and over again, my detective told me that unless a video came back that showed me, quote, looking like a corpse, then it wouldn't be helpful. Not only is that simply untrue, but it just completely demonstrates the lack of training that we've heard about again and again and again from every single person who works in this field, who knows this field inside and out, and who can speak to the training that officers get when they're on the job specifically relating to sexual assault. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about common characteristics of people who commit these assaults, especially for drug-facilitated sexual assault, 
It tends to be people who are white, men, men who are of some kind of position of trust, who have some degree of wealth, people who are typically in our criminal system a little bit hard to take down and a little bit more credible than your random person off the street. And I was really curious as Keith Graves talked in the last episode about common characteristics that make it so easy to get search warrants given the certain conditions of a victim who is reporting a drug facilitated sexual assault. I was curious to hear more about common characteristics of these people and the different things that they do. When you get one, you know that there's going to be multiple victims. It's just how are you going to find them, you know, and how are you going to get the word out? Um, uh, but yeah, you know, this is something that they've, they've often done. It's like child molesters. Um, the, they often know their victims. Um, they've often done it multiple times, sometimes, most of the time to the same victim. Um, it's just one of those repetitive things. Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate and it's disgusting, but that's the world we live in right now. And in case you missed it in the last episode, he also said that the people that commit this crime are very likely to videotape what they do. He also said that it's very, very common, as you just heard, that there are multiple victims. These people usually don't just have one victim, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So I asked him about how you find those other victims, and one of the questions I had was, do you bring it to the media? And here's what he said about that. Usually that information is going to come out after the person was charged with a crime. So, again, important to note, not only does that person have to be arrested, which is 5% of the time nationally, or in some places less, but they also have to be indicted, which means a county prosecutor's office is already behind it and already willing to press forward with charges. The likeliness of that is literally about 1% or less. And they might be in custody, and then they'll just say, hey, this guy was in custody for this crime. He might have done it to other people, but if, if you think you were a victim, then give us a call. And you'll have a lot of people that, well, not a lot, but you'll have some people who will call and go, I remember that guy. I met him at a party. I know him. And I remember one night I woke up really drunk, but I don't remember drinking that much. And then they come forward and say, I think I might have been a victim. And they just give a little bit of information and we're able to cooperate it or not cooperate it. But you're going to have to get that out because one victim is really 10. You just don't know who the other nine are yet. I love this because this speaks volumes to how confusing it is to be drugged. I don't love it in the sense that this is how it happens and that this happens so frequently and people don't even understand that it has happened to them. But I remember very early on when this had happened to me, I had gone home and I had visited my brother across the country and the rest of my family. And I remember talking to my brother and him saying, with things like this, it's so likely that somebody knew something was kind of a little bit off, something didn't seem right, but who would come forward and who would suspect that out of somebody they trusted unless somebody brought it up forward? And I also remember being in the hospital getting my SANE exam, and I remember specifically telling the advocates, you know, I wouldn't mind coming forward and reporting this, but there's no way I'm going to be the first person to do it. And the reason that I felt comfortable saying that was because I really genuinely did not feel like I was the first person who had ever been in this position, in this situation. So it's incredibly validating to hear just on a personal level that that's not the case, but for anybody else who's been in that position, it's also really validating. Being drugged is so much more common than I would have even imagined, and it's so much more confusing than I would have imagined. 
in the early days when I was talking to friends and people about what had happened, and even now still, once in a while when I bring it up, there will be somebody who tells me exactly of a time when they feel they definitely had been drugged or were pretty sure they were drugged, and to me it's very obvious, but to them they're still a little bit confused. And I can understand their confusion. It's a very confusing thing to go through, and until you go through it, you have no idea what that level of confusion means. You want to explain it away in any other way. And it's also when alcohol is involved, even if it's just a minimal amount, you always just wonder, did it interfere with something in my brain differently that night than it did on any other night? You want to believe that it's something else, anything else, anything different than somebody that you trusted, that you had every reason to trust choosing not only to violate you in one of the most horrible ways, but to decide that whatever they were doing to you was so awful that they needed to make you not remember what it was. I would like to finish this episode off, as far as research goes, by talking to Julie Valentine. I had asked her a little bit about her research on drug-facilitated sexual assault, And she had some really good insight, but one of the things that she left me with that I really wanted to make sure was known by anybody who listens to this, and hopefully by everyone as time goes on, is that as the neurobiology of trauma in that whole field emerges, which is so important, especially in the criminal field, it's not like it's new, but it's being introduced to the criminal field increasingly as time goes on, I wanted to make sure that people knew the difference between trauma causing a blockage of memory and drugs causing a blockage of memory. And so she did a really good job of explaining the difference between what it means to be drugged and what it means to lose your memory due to trauma. And of course this is different for every person, it's totally dependent on the time of life that this event happened to you. But as somebody who, like me, was in their late 20s when this happened to them, was familiar with alcohol, had been through other traumatic situations in life, it's not like this is the only negative thing that had ever happened to me in all of the time. I think it's really important to know that as an adult, any person who can relate, who has been through anything, and who this happens to, it's important to understand that losing your memory entirely for four entire hours is not the result of a traumatic response. Here's what she had to say. It it varies on how much memory loss people might have. You have some that it's just like, they'll talk about just being glitches in memory loss, where um, others will say, I think I lost like an hour, I don't remember. Um, Generally, the ones that are longer memory loss those are the suspected drug facilitated, but the ones that we look back on from the trauma, they are uh, generally shorter time periods. And this, of course, makes perfect sense. If you're going through a traumatic event, there might be little things that you don't remember. There might be short periods of times that you don't remember. But during something like a sexual assault, it's unlikely that (laughs) you're going to forget time before you were even being sexually assaulted while you were still sitting at a bar, having a conversation, having a drink, when there was likely no recollection to you that something was about to go wrong. And it doesn't make sense that you would wake up hours later with your limbs heavy and impossible to move. It doesn't make sense that you would wake up later 
go into the kitchen, find some trail mix, and drop it on the floor because a half a pound, if that much, bag was too heavy for you to carry. Having this short of an episode on drug-facilitated sexual assault is honestly doing a disservice to the crime. It's something that demands and needs so much more attention because it's increasingly common and these cases are almost never taken to trial even they're the most sinister of sexual assaults. The most common that are taken to trial are stranger cases because for so long people have known how to investigate those. But it's time to make that change. It's time that we demand more. It's time that you go to your local police department and as Keith Graves said to me, It's time that you demand that your officers and your detectives in sexual assault have the training that is required to be able to accurately investigate a drug-facilitated sexual assault. Because this type of sexual assault is, even though they're all completely cruel, this is uniquely completely cruel because you don't remember what happened to you. And one important thing that I talked to a trauma psychologist, Dwayne Bowers, from episode 2 about was how being drug facilitated sexual assaulted can be different from other types of sexual assault and he mentioned that trauma lives in the body whether you remember it or whether you don't that means that you can have triggers that cause you to cry cause you to be upset cause you to go into post-traumatic stress and you have no idea why it happens This has happened to me and it's been incredibly distressful. I still don't understand so much about what happened to me. And all I wish is that I could know. It's not going to determine my life one way or another, knowing or not. Especially considering that the person that did this to me is savoring the fact that I have no idea what happened to me for whatever messed up reason. But I still find it completely sick that somebody thinks it's important enough to make you not remember what they did to you. Keith Graves talks about how people often operate in concert. There are people who do it in groups. There are sometimes men and women who do it in conjunction. There are examples of that in the media. And people don't have any idea about it until later on because it is so disruptive to what you think of as normal behavior. And that's exactly what drug-facilitated sexual assault is. Especially if you know the person, especially if you have reason to trust the person, it completely disrupts what you would consider to be normal. It changes everything. The amount that I was confused, I cannot overstate, and it was largely because of the circumstances that led up to the moment of me being drugged. Looking at it in hindsight is 2020. Looking at it from the perspective of where I am now, I really have my friends and other people, just as Keith Graves described, to thank for the fact that I figured out what was going on. We're going to be hearing more from Julie Valentine, who is phenomenal and an amazing researcher and practitioner with sexual assault survivors. But before that, just for everything that Keith Graves did, I really want to make sure that he has the recognition that he deserves. If you go to the website that he's about to mention, he has an incredible course in drug-facilitated sexual assault. It costs about $50. To consider the fact that police departments could train their entire sexual assault unit for $50 in an online training course, it's incredible. And honestly, it was such an impactful video and 
course that I watched, and I'm not even in that field, that it would be amazing. And everything that he said rang true with me as a victim. So if you're someone in a detective who's actually victim-centered, this is a course that you're going to take. I received no money, I received nothing from telling you that this is an incredible course to take, and I strongly recommend it. You can also follow him on Twitter, he's known as Dope Cop, and he is a pretty dope cop, so I think that's pretty fair, although I'm, I, I think he might have insinuated that for different reasons. Anyway, I'm going to finish up this episode by letting him talk a little bit more about how you can find his materials because this is so important to cracking drug-facilitated sexual assault and being able to get it open because there are so few people working on this, so few people spending tireless energy on this very under-prosecuted crime and very misunderstood crime. And just as a general layperson, if you're not someone who's been this, through this, if somebody tells you that they have been drugged this is something that you need to listen to. When I was talking to friends, I had heard from so many friends, males included, even if they hadn't been raped, that they had been drugged and they knew it because they had been robbed or what have you. Being drugged is so much more common in this world than we would like to admit or like to think about. And I'm sure it goes so underreported because it is so incredibly disorienting, confusing, and impossible to prove. So thank you so much for indulging me in this segment on drug-facilitated sexual assault that honestly everyone needs to be more aware of. And we're going to hear um, in future episodes from Keith Graves about how prosecution can better handle dealing with cases with drug-facilitated sexual assault. Although he talked in the last episode about how to investigate them, which I'd encourage you to go back and listen to. He's a very aggressive investigator and he does an excellent job on behalf of victims and the community who suspects would continue to torment without his investigations. In the next um, couple of episodes, you're going to be hearing from him about how he suggests overcoming the obstacles that come up as a result of drug-facilitated sexual assault, negative toxicology reports, and pretty much everything we covered today. So here he is one last time. I just really want you to hear what he has to say. If you want more information on how to investigate drug facilitated, drug facilitated sexual assault, I have an online course for it. Um, I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes. Um, you just go to onlinetraining.gravesassociates.com. If you want to follow me on social media, um, and I also have a newsletter, if you want to, uh, I put out information pretty much on the daily about current drug trends and some of it includes drug facilitated sexual assault. Um, if you're interested in this, you should probably look at that because the drug trends change so much. Um, it's kind of, it's the easiest way to keep up with all the current drug trends. And just as a little FYI, I gave this information to the jurisdiction that I reported to and they blew me off. They asked me what his credentials were. They had the audacity to doubt him. And I think that that's really important to know. If you tell your police department about this and they still don't seek the training that they clearly need, this is something that needs to be brought up and we need to band together and demand more as people. Thank you so much for, again, continuing to listening to this. In the next episode, we're going to be talking a little bit more about what happens between that weird area of closing out a case and going to prosecution, and we're going to be talking about a very specific type of case closure called exceptional clearance. This is brought about by some 
efforts from ProPublica and other organizations and investigators that band together. And I spoke with one of them who was able to very succinctly and amazingly well put together all of the issues that go with exceptional clearance. So I hope you'll continue to listen as we get into prosecution and move past officers and first response and detective work and really dive into what it is that prosecutors are looking for to bring this crime forward and why fewer than 1% in the United States bring them forward. Thank you again to everybody who has been continuing to reach out to me. As a result of this project, I've been continuing to receive forms from survivingjustice.org and if you leave your email, just know that everything is confidential between us and I will continue to respond to you and work with you in whatever capacity you feel comfortable. Thank you so much for trusting me with your incredibly important stories so far. If you have something to share, go to survivingjustice.org into the contact form, or you can email me directly at survivingjusticepodcast at gmail.com.